0: Okay, December the 2nd, 2018, this is lesson number 50. And As I've already said a couple of times, we're looking at finishing up on the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, and I mentioned it's often called the Disciples' Prayer. <clears throat> we look at it, it's basically divided into two parts, and we covered uh, the, first, uh, the first three of six petitions last week that deal with the name of God, the kingdom of God, and the will of God, so today we can finish up by looking at man's need. First section, dealing with God's glory from last week, this week dealing with man's need. And Christ mentions in the prayer our daily bread, and he talks about forgiveness. And he talks further about protection from temptation in this life. So we'll do as much as we can to, to cover these three and finish up with that this morning. So we look, first of all, at this part of the prayer that talks about praying for our daily bread. Now, in our society, it probably goes without saying that with only a few exceptions, maybe no exceptions in this class or maybe even in this entire church, we've never really seen the need to pray for this. Would you agree with that? Because of something we don't have by way of being able to be sustained by food and water. We don't, we don't normally find ourselves destitute in that area. I would even go so far as to say, and we're just coming off of thanksgiving, that most of the time uh, we're tempted, if not succumbing to the temptation, that when we're praying about this, we're doing it as a matter of discipline and discipline only. And by that I mean thanking God for what we have because it really wasn't a huge effort to get it. That God has supplied us. That's a huge thing when you stop and look at it and you look at it uh, from a worldly view and by that I mean you know considering people throughout the world who don't have that advantage, who don't know quite frankly where their next meal is coming from. Our prayers are more along the line of, Lord, help me lose weight, (laughs) okay? Or help me not to commit one of the seven deadly sins and become a glutton. Uh, That would be more common, I think, about our prayers regarding food. But this really goes beyond that, what Christ is bringing forth here. Uh, And it's not that he's just using food as an example here, uh, but in a way he is. He's talking about God's provision as a whole. Now this dominated their society with few exceptions. and we've talked about that before. In an agrarian society, agrarian culture where you know, people had to work and the land had to feed them. You had some people who were in commerce and business and so forth. but uh, economy was a whole lot different in the Middle East then than it is now. Obviously, there were no publics, there were no Krogers, okay? It was the sweat of your brow or that of someone else, and uh, quite, quite different. Uh, A tool that might be used against someone in battle would be to cut off their food supply, to effect a siege. No water, no food, nothing can come out, which is important as well. (laughs) If you're talking about a city, Uh, as many a time throughout history, a siege has been set upon a city, and by the time they're half starved and diseased, then they're more easily conquered. We see that happening. So it had a whole, whole uh, different economy. So Christ mentions that. And he points out specifically here, and it's an, an acknowledgement that, that God the Father is the source for all this. He's not only the source of our daily bread, but he is the source of every single thing that we need in this life. And so for a person to offer up a prayer uh, in any regard about something that you need it first and foremost, and it goes without saying, I guess, that you acknowledge that God is the only one who can supply that. I mean, it's at his beck and will. It's based upon his promises, his provision, And we like thinking about the fact that His storehouses are full, that they they never run out. And He gives. We have examples throughout the Word. Christ's own words talking about uh, using the example of a father giving and how much more would God give to us and all these different things. God is a giver. He is a provider. One of the names that we looked at for Him last week was God as a provider. So we know that. So specifically, when we look at this verse from Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, where he says, give us this day our daily bread, and we look at that word give specifically, we see that he is literally making a petition. And Christ is telling us, remember, in the understanding that this is a model prayer, he's talking about coming before God with the mind that you're, you're bringing a petition. You've given this some forethought. Specifically here, you know where your help comes from. And you're going to Him to ask for that, making this petition in your prayer. Asking, this part about just asking, of course, assumes that you already know that, that that's a part of your daily life, that you live, that you're dependent upon the provisions of God in your life. When I looked at that, that seemed so simple, but then I began to think, now this is where people get in trouble, because they start thinking that the good things that are happening in their life, the provision even that's a result of their life or their hard work or whatever, might totally be at their effort, or maybe even just a little bit at their effort. When the Word of God would teach us, we'll look at Scripture specifically here in a moment, that it's God who provides that. And it's right for us to acknowledge that. And I trust around our Thanksgiving dinners and our Thanksgiving tables with our families that we do that. I always try to pray. If I have the prayer at Thanksgiving, which I normally do, is that we acknowledge that everything that we have and enjoy comes from our Heavenly Father. And this is a healthy mindset for us because when you live in a society that's materialistic, that is rich by any standard, it's very easy to be pulled away and to forget, actually, if, you, if I may use the term, where our bread is buttered, okay? God is the one who provides for us. And it's spiritually healthy for us to continue to, re- to remember that. Even the, the use of the word us here speaks of those who belong to God. That's the context here that Christ is bringing forth. It refers to those who continually seek Him because it's to that group of people that the promises are made. So what a privilege we have in serving God and depending upon Him. The verse that I alluded to was from James chapter 1, verse 17, which says, Every good thing and every perfect gift Given, everything that's given to us <clears throat> comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And James takes a moment to do just what I'm trying to do here this morning to expound upon where our provisions come from. Because this is healthy to our understanding, because we all have needs, right? And even when things are good, even when things are productive, even greater need can be placed upon us, particularly as we try to minister to other people and provide resources to other people in our life. James says it refers to every good thing, every appropriate, every righteous thing that comes into our life. God's perfection and inclusiveness is demonstrated here. It is literally the act of giving everything, and God is our example in that. Christ is our example. He speaks of every perfect gift, the subject or the object of God's giving. It is indeed the thing giving, given. It's perfect, and that's what we want. We literally do not want what we want as Christians. We want, I trust, what God wants us to have. Because he says, I know that better than you do. I know what you need right now better than you know. So we can't divorce ourselves or separate ourselves from the act of faith and our trusting in Him, relying upon Him. He mentions here in this verse, and we look at James just a moment here, um, the Father of lights, and he's speaking of God as Creator. He's literally talking about and referring to His creation of the sun and the moon and the stars. But this was an old Hebrew expression. And they understood what that meant. And lastly, he would remind us from this particular verse that with God there is no variation. There is no shifting shadow or any turning on his part as one uh, translation says. He doesn't change. In other words, what he has promised is steadfast. He's going to provide it. So we need to trust Him in all those things. Philippians 4, verse 19, I mentioned in my prayer this morning. God says that I will supply all your needs. God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. What a promise. And Paul lays that out for the church at Philippi or in Deuteronomy 8:18. 8, we go back to the Old Testament where it reads, But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He, not you, but it is He who is giving your power, you power to make wealth. That's why I say it comes from Him. It's not us. All we can do is respond in thanksgiving for what he's provided. He gives us the power to make wealth. And then the scripture continues that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. What was that covenant? And part of that covenant in context was that he would supply, he would direct, and he would supply. And when We lay hold of the promises of God They're there not just for the the practical provision. They're there to encourage us, to help us not to take on more than we need to take on in terms of responsibility. We have to find that place of rest in trusting God to do what He says He will do. That never means that we sit idle, that we get lazy, that we don't get involved that we don't do everything that we can do because it's Him that gives us the strength to do it. And we do what we do for His honor and glory. We trust in His provision. I trust that somewhere in your young life, perhaps even your young married life, because this is an important lesson, that you had a tough time, that you had a bit of a struggle that you had a, a season in your young married life when you had to say, okay, honey, we got, we got to sit down and we got to decide what's priority here. We've had a good time, okay, eh, but we're a little spendthrift, you know, we're not really thinking about the future like we should, um, and hey, we got bills to pay, and you say, well, that's practical, that happens to everyone, but you know if you've experience that and you know if you've uh, raised kids into that and beyond that 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 is a situation an opportunity a circumstance that you do not want to take away from them because there's only one way to learn that right there's only one way And when i say learn it <laughs> i mean for it to sink deep <laughs> within your heart and your mind and you know and you can overdo that you know you you can wind up uh Really being faithless on the other end, acting like that you got to save every single dime and you can't do this and you can't do that. No, that's not faith and trust either. It's a yielding to God because of His faithfulness and His provisions. I think one of the best things that you can hope for in this life doesn't have anything to do with the kind of car you drive or the type of house you live in. It has to do with God is providing for your necessities, whatever they are, And you are free to serve him, period. Anything else is an overemphasis on the things of this world. Everything else is. Now, he showers his blessings differently on different people, and all I can say to you is to whom much is given, much is required. Because you can rest assured that this life is temporary, and the trappings of our materialistic society are temporary. It's more about what God has provided. And in fact, he says plainly, if you've got a roof over your head and you've got clothes on your back and you've got food to eat, what is our spiritual position, he says? And you should be content with that. You should be content with that. And if something is missing in that regard, then we go before him. Lord, show me. Am I thinking rightly? Am I doing rightly? Am I doing all I can do? Am I responsive to your voice? And God will answer. That prayer, that's His economy. Well, not only does God the Father provide the bread, and I have to add this, but Christ Himself is our bread, is He not? He is the bread of life. That's why later on in this chapter when we get to verse 33, He'll tell us to seek first. First! We talked about priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you we'll finish up with verse 15 today, I trust. So from 15 to 33, we're going to look at all those things. Because he's going to finish up and give us that particular insight about putting Christ first and trusting him in all things. The word is just filled, really, with scriptures about this issue of work and responsibility and everything. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 would tell us, and I'll just paraphrase these, that if you don't work, you don't eat. No work, no eating. Plain. I can understand that. He says if you, um, uh, oh yeah, uh, Proverbs 16.26, and I was, had, had read over this, or was just unaware of this verse, Proverbs 16.26, where he says, that basically, you'll work when you get hungry. That's what he says. <laughs> if you get hungry enough, you'll go to work. And he's saying, so look ahead and know what you need to do and respond. Proverbs sixteen twenty six. And then, of course, persons in 1 Timothy eight. he says, a person who will not work is worse than an unbeliever. Because what's the message there? It says that that person is unaware, unresponsive to the provision of God. And God is our provider. Psalms 37.25, David says, I've been young and now I'm old, and yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who who comes to me will, will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Christ is talking from a spiritual perspective there, but I couldn't help but make the parallel there. He is, as I say again, our bread, our life, and that encourages us to focus upon Him, not only for the spiritual, but for the practical needs of this life. When we understand what's required of us. God will provide. He will do that. So let's move to verse 12 in this sixth chapter here, where he says, and he moves to a, the topic of forgiveness And he says to forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts. As we also have forgiven our debtors. You get the impression, I don't know how long it took for Christ to talk about this or teach this. Uh, Most commentators understand he probably did this more than once at different locations. Don't know how long he dwelled on this but it seems that these these, uh, six examples here, or petitions as we say, they're just fired at the listeners. Now he moves from this issue of being thankful for the necessities of life to focus upon the issue of forgiveness, forgiving us our debts, and he adds, as we have forgiven our debtors. So obviously you can see here, there's a lot to cover. This word forgive The Greek word "ephemi" it means to forsake or to lay aside. It means to let something alone, to take it out, to put it away, to omit it. And that's what Christ does with our sin and that's what He wants us to do in our mind. When we forgive someone of their debt to us, that's what we do. This word here, (coughs) the, the Greek word used, uh, when he talks about uh, debts or sin, it's, you know, we use the word hamartia, which means missing the mark. And there are like five different words. Uh, parato- paratoma, a word that means or is often referred to as just a simple trespass or somebody slips and falls. It's not so a whole lot of intent involved, but it's just something that happens. Uh, parabasis, another word, which means stepping across the line, going too far. Uh, whatever that results in a type of sin or anomia, of course, which is the, the worst, the most flagrant, which is the word that's often translated lawlessness, a flagrant sin. And it's associated with literally a direct, a known rebellion. Hey, I know this is wrong. I know this is sinful, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's what I want to do. And Here he uses this word, which just simply uh, talks about uh, it's really a word that means sin in general. I guess is the best way to say it. It was a more common word. And he says, and this is the important part, he adds, and forgiving us our debts, but he adds here as also we have forgiven our debtors. And this is very, very specific language in the original language, and it focuses on the fact that the person has forgiven, that they will forgive, that it is their, if you would say, their their natural response, I'm talking about natural in the spirit, they, this is what that person will do. It's an assumption, it's, and it's a simple word here, a phrase that indicates that, that this is to be expected on the part of those who follow Christ. This is going to follow. You will be one who forgives. So there's a danger, is there not? When we have, God help us, we have an unforgiving spirit. That's a problem. Because Christ here says, whoa, this is is so basic. This is something that is a natural outflow because you belong to me, right? And that's why we can spend most of the rest of our time talking about forgiveness. Because we all have sin. And we all, as believers, as true believers, we have acknowledged that sin. We know the cost. We know the damage. We know the difficulties that follow sin in our life. Sin that has not been addressed. Sins that we are running from. That we're not confessing. God help us. That we're actually embracing. Dangerous. So we mentioned four things. Sin sin separates man from God in relationship or fellowship or both. Right? That's what it does. And Isaiah would remind us of that in chapter 59 verse 2 when he says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. And that word iniquities in the Hebrew, avon or avon as it's pronounced, it means a fault. It means some kind of mischief. And he's talking here really about What we might consider a lower level, a more general area of sin. So it means any sin has the potential, any unconfessed sin, and does separate us from God. And you say, well, how can I as a believer be separated from God? We have a relationship. He is my Heavenly Father, and that can't be messed with. With the understanding here, and it's even better in the New Testament, it talks about not relationship, but fellowship. That's what it's talking about. It's easiest for us to understand, I think, when we look at it from those two perspectives. But rest assured, I'm going to tell you something that you already know this morning. You move about in your life with unconfessed sin. And let me tell you, your day's going to go down the tubes. You do not have the fullness of God's Spirit over your life for discernment, for direction. I talk about hearing His voice, and again I say so there won't be any misunderstanding, hearing His voice as confirmed by the Word of God. I'm not talking about something mystical. But hearing His voice clearly. And We know that we can do that. You don't don't have that. Does that not make you feel somewhat insecure? And if you really feel that, then that helps you evaluate your sin. And get this, no matter how small you think that sin is, it has its potential to wreak havoc in your life. It will cost you. It will cost others. It will hinder your service for Christ. It will do damage to the fellowship of God. It will do damage to your family. And I'm tempted to say like most people, who can do that? Who can live this way? Look, you know what? We just come to the Word of God and we say, Lord, I hear that. I read that. I see that. And I submit myself to you. Touch my heart when I get in that area. It ain't nothing I can do. I need you, and he will answer that prayer. That's the good news. He will do it. Secondly, he talks about forgiveness being our greatest need. When I say he here, I'm talking about commentators, and I did take this stuff. I, I enjoyed what MacArthur Commentary had on this. I loved the way it was broken down. It's very specific because it focuses on issues of forgiveness. In fact, it is literally the central theme here from verse 9 through verse Fifteen. That's what he's talking about it. He mentions it six times in eight verses here. Everything either leads to or issues out of this topic of forgiveness. So we acknowledge God's eternal forgiveness. We know that our debt is paid as believers. Thank God Romans 8.1 would remind us, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. This is our greatest strength when we know and realize this and we operate in this and we don't take advantage of it. I marked, because I felt it necessary, uh, uh, Romans 8, really 31 through 39. Listen to this and be encouraged. The subtitle in in my Bible here is God's Everlasting Love, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over to us all... How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. This is what we have in Christ. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? with tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We can't escape the battle. We can't. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but in all things, hallelujah, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. This is what we have. This is our great Riches, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And friends, why would we worry and bother about any of life's difficulties? We do it. Because we still have the flesh. We do it because so often we neglect our spiritual life. We focus upon the, the practical demands, the physical demands. You might even say the emotional demands, the mental difficulties that come upon our life. Because of life, and Christ says we need to be reminded. Paul tells the church, you need... You need to constantly be aware of what God has done and is doing for you, and he is available to do even more. And that's never to be lavished upon us in a way that is uh, to be taken advantage of or to put us in any way on easy street. I was sharing with Gabe before our class, and I shared with someone else last week who had come up to me. I don't, maybe I look weary or something. I don't know, but... Everybody all of a sudden seems concerned about my life and how things are going. So I was able to say, you know, life is busy. It's busy at work. It's busy uh, in my ministry here that, that I have and lesson preparations and all those kind of things. It's busy with family, with extended family. But I can say this, I don't really feel like I'm spinning my wheels anywhere. In other words, I feel like that what I am involved in is things I need to be involved in. I'll just leave the, the difficulty of that or the weight of that up to the Lord. But I'd rather be involved. I mean, I think, I think when you sit down to evaluate whether or not you have a full life, or whether or not you're spending your life, or whether you're investing your life, which, of course, is two different things, and that's the, the, that's the uh, estimation that you want to have at the end. Yeah, I'm busy, but I'm not lazy, and I'm not non-productive, and I am seeing God's hand. That's the best we can hope for. That's the best we can hope for. I would only add that even Jesus himself saw a need for a little vacation. They tried to get across the lake, you know. You know always, there they are, you know. They get in a boat and they go across the lake. Here, the, then the, the needy just, just put on their running shoes and they run around the other side, okay? When he gets over there, you know, there they are. And we never have anything in the scripture that says that he ever got the vacation. Come apart, he said. As one preacher said, come apart before you fall apart. We need that. I would only say to you that God will provide that if that's what we need. But it starts with being thankful for what we have and for the blessings of God. And then what did I do? I went to John. I could just do this from the Word of God so much better. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. A few verses beginning with verse 5. Listen to this. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, "Lord, do you wish to wash my feet, or do you wash my feet?" Jesus answered and said to him, "What do you not realize now, but you will understand hereafter?" Peter said to him, "Never shall you wash my feet." Jesus. Jesus answered him, "If I do not wash you," You have no part with me. Ah, new information for Simon Peter. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Right? He's the one who came to Christ after the miracle. He said, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Thank God Peter never lost that. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, wash all of me. In verse 10, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed, Needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he who knew, for he knew rather the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, "Not all of you are clean." Peter got the message, did he not? So we're talking about forgiveness, because he was forgiven. And Christ adds, he said, "Look, because of what has happened to you, remember? Flesh and blood, Peter, has not revealed it unto you, but My Father has revealed it unto you. This is not the work of man per se in your life that you believe. You've acknowledged your sin and you've turned to the true and living God and that is a reality in your life. But you've got dirty feet because you've been going where you don't need to go. And you've got dirty hands because you've been handling things that you don't need to know. And I could throw in there, if the Lord will allow me, you've got a dirty mind because you've been thinking about things that are not of God. And you need to come and you need to be washed. You're clean. You're clean because of the perfection of Christ and what He's done. But it's not just about that relationship. It's about fellowship. And it's about strength, spiritual strength in your life. So Peter got the message. We add that to our discussion about forgiveness. Thirdly says we cry out to God in recognition of our sin for His forgiveness. Right quickly, I'll go to 1 John 1-9, of course. If we confess our sins, and that means to agree with God, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for that. Psalm 103, a wonderful, wonderful psalm. You need to go home and read and study the whole thing today. Because it refers to a God who pardons all our iniquities. All of them. All means all here. And He heals all of our diseases. And that is not a reference to physical diseases. It's talking about the disease of sin and all the tentacles of sin. All that mess that comes out of our sinful Thoughts, words, and actions. The things that we get involved in and when we realize, man, I could never take that back. I can't get that back. I've already thought it. I've already said it. I've already done it. And it says here that the grace of God covers that. And when we come before Him and refuse to, well, to return away from God and not confess, not agree with Him, when we refuse to do that, God takes that out of us. That's true repentance. And He gives us strength over those things as our life continues. We are to grow in in the grace and in the knowledge of God. We are to be, as Paul says on one occasion, those who are spiritual. Those who are walking in the Spirit of God. We're trusting Him. Apart from experience, apart from feeling, we're trusting Him. Him He will provide. And then lastly, (coughs) Jesus prescribes a a prerequisite for receiving grace here, right? He talks about you forgive because you're forgiven. He's going to throw some more light on that in verses 14 and 15. But here it's just simply a sobering principle that we have been forgiven, and that is the impetus, that is the strength for our forgiveness of others. Period. That's where it comes from. So I say again, if you can't forgive, if you think you've just been hurt too bad to forgive, then I'd trust that you would get on your face before God and once again be reminded of what you were forgiven from, where your life was headed, All right, apart from Christ. And when that's over, And He begins to fill us and to shower us with the truth of His Word and strength to do what we need to do each and every day. It is the character of a true believer to forgive. Other points as I finish up. I'm running out of time. To forgive others is to share the greatest of our blessings. What else do we have to share? What what greater blessing do we have to impart by word of knowledge to another person than the fact that, hey, this is the road I was on. Christ changed me. There is a new birth. There is a state of being born again. There is that. God has changed my life. And you need this in your life. Grace and mercy are extended to others through us. This is the work of the church. Forgiveness marks the truly regenerate heart. Period. And Christ is our, of course, He is our example in this forgiveness, Paul tells the church at Ephesus, "Be kind to one another, be tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you." He was aware of this; he understood this. Or Proverbs nineteen eleven: A man's discretions make him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. And it's not talking about condoning sin or not dealing with that which needs to be dealt with. It's talking about that attitude that jumps on something, the first opportunity you have, because in some strange way, maybe sometimes a way that's even unknown to us, we get some satisfaction out of talking about the faults of others. That's never to be the attitude of the Christian. No. And for a person who's been to the foot of the cross who's acknowledged their need for Christ, their own sinfulness, and has experienced the weight of that sin burden being lifted. It's a reality. And it is an impetus. It is the strength behind forgiving others. The Bible's clear on it. 1 Corinthians 11.30 would add, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. And the text here, the context here, Paul's talking about judgment on believers, for disrespecting the Lord's Supper. Right? That's what he's talking about. And I mention that here just as a reminder that it is important for us to not delay or not to uh, disregard the seriousness of any sin in our life. To allow God to deal with it. Thomas Watson wrote, he said, There is one so tender, or there is none, there's one so tender to others. There is, there is no one so tender to others as they which have received mercy themselves. For they know how gently God hath dealt with them. Simple but true. Simple but true. Well, I'm, a, I'm short <clears throat> a little bit. Got a page to go. We'll finish up next week and probably go ahead and get on into our, our next lesson. I'll just make that happen next week.